Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 27, New Developments in Functional Prototyping and Agile Manufacturing. This is the second episode in our Future of Work series that started with episode 26. As the world begins to thaw from COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, we find that the nature of the workplace and flow of work within companies has changed forever. Additive manufacturing played a unique role in addressing some of the painful vulnerabilities revealed by the fragility of supply chains, trade relations, and the complexity of the products of today. Today, we have three stories of companies that reveal how 3D printing is changing the game with functional prototyping and optimization for producing industrial parts. Guests this week are Chris Peters, co-founder and chief innovation officer at the global smartphone accessory company Quadlock, Ola von Seelen, head of business development, marketing, and sales from Trinkle, who introduces their approach to configurators to help companies resolve entire application families of parts with Paramate, and finally co-founder and CEO Alexander Pluk from Additive Flow, who demonstrates how multifunctional AM software tackling multi-objective, multi-material scenarios will change expectations for 3D printing for industrial and engineering customers. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives, and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 27th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of nearly 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. The first company we will visit today is Quadlock in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, So my name is Chris Peters. I'm the co-founder and chief innovation officer here at Quadlock. Co-founder and chief innovation officer Chris Peters tells the story of how he and co-founder Rob Ward drew on years of experience in the product design space to launch Quadlock. It started as a crowdfunding project and has grown to millions of sales globally and is a preferred solution of choice for mounting smartphones on bikes, tripods, and more. Chris, thank you very much for joining Talking Additive today. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Chris Peters describes the roles that 3D printers have played in their accelerated product development and validation process, including during COVID lockdown in Melbourne, when Chris and his staff took their 3D printers home to keep working. I've always been um, interested in creating and tinkering and and making things. Heading into university, I had a choice between engineering and industrial design. Wasn't sure which way to go. My dad was an engineer, so I had a a fairly strong engineering background. But after touring all the universities and seeing all the cool renderings and exciting stuff that industrial designers were doing, it looked a lot more interesting than the uh, the calculations and uh, physics that a lot of the uh, engineers were doing. So that kind of set my path down the uh, industrial design route. I've been an industrial designer for about 20 years now. I've worked at many design consultancies over the years before setting up my own business. So ran that for a few years and then was always developing my own products on the side. So I come out with ideas and either 
you know, modeling them up, sketching them up, getting some prototypes done, but never really had the gusto to really put some money and dedication behind any of the ideas to turn them into you know, big commercial successes. And the one thing that really changed that was crowdfunding. So I'd been developing a few ideas and I was being, I was actually doing a bit of, had a little side business going on with my business partner now, Rob. And we, we, we tried a few different business processes and different approaches. And we really liked the idea of having a product business. And we had one at the time, but we were importing and reselling someone else's products. And funnily enough, also got involved with 3D printing there as well. But really like the idea of having uh, a product business where we could design, manufacture and sell our own goods. And I had this idea for uh, mounting smartphones on bikes. It was well, 2007, I think, when the first iPhone came out. Uh, and that was launched in the US, but it wasn't available in Australia. So I managed to find a guy who was importing them. I have no idea how he's getting his hands on them, but he was bringing them in by the bag full and got one of the original iPhones in Australia. And I just moved to a new city and I was using the phone to navigate around. It was Google Maps back then. Yeah. Uh, so I was using this phone to find it, you know, navigate around this new city. And I was always constantly taking it in and out of my pocket uh, and was just concerned about dropping it or damaging the phone. I'm like, geez, it would be neat if I could have this attached to my handlebars so I could, you know, see where I was going and check the maps all the time and looked around and there just was nothing on the market. iPhone cases weren't really a big thing back then and neither was mounting phones. So with pure frustration of not finding a suitable solution, I developed something myself. So I sketched up some idea, had some pretty rough 3D prototypes by just modifying some existing iPhone cases and latching bits and pieces on it so it could be attached to the handlebars with you know zip ties and duct tape. And it had been working on this idea and it progressed it to a point where it was you know, getting to the point where it was almost a workable product and had been watching what had been happening with crowdfunding uh, on Kickstarter especially. And it was that point where I think one of the first crowdfunded products had tipped over a million dollars. It was the TikTok watch by Lunatic. And that was a catalyst point. It was like, there's definitely legs here. We've got to throw some ideas up. So our first crowdfunded project wasn't Quadlock. It was another product. It was a, an iPhone bottle opener uh, called Opener. So we decided to put a slide-out bottle opener on the back of an iPhone case. Nice. We knew that anything the iPhone cases were hot at the time, and we figured if you put a bottle opener on anything, you would sell it. Uh, and we kind of used that as our learning platform. So we got the hang of crowdfunding. We really got into global logistics and how to ship product all over the world because crowdfunding generally is a global market. So cut our teeth on that product and then learned from that and then reinvested a lot of our learnings and money into Quadlock and got that up and running on crowdfunding as well. That really validated that the, the product had an audience and gave us some initial capital to you know, fund all the tooling and the development of it. And then fast forward 10 years and here we are now to having what is a, a globally recognized brand and one of the market leading smartphone mounting systems in the world. At what point did you first encounter 3D printing? So I first encountered 3D printing, it would have been in university days. Uh, we're talking early, mid 90s. It was in my final year of university. And we had a new lecturer that had, uh, was probably well-versed with the, the technology and what was happening in the space. And we'd just been introduced to 3D CAD as well. So we were using AutoCAD at the time uh, and doing some very basic 3D modeling. We were designing a coffee plunger, I think it was. And as the group, we selected the best project between all the students. And that final design was then, through our lecturer, was being able to be 3D printed because uh, it was still relatively expensive back then. So... It was a very fairly crude FDM style process, fairly thick layers, 
but it was revolutionary. It was very cool. It got a lot of the uh, students, including myself, very excited about the fact that we could design something on a computer and have it printed out you know, in a matter of hours, if not days, uh, and didn't have to go down the workshop and cut things out of MDF and sand and paint them and, and glue them together. So no, it, was, it was very cool. It was probably our first real time of... I had heard of 3D printing and seen it before, but generally it was reserved for the very expensive end of you know the commercial industry, mm-hmm. but seeing it done at a university level and yeah. touching something that we'd actually designed up and had done all the detailing on was pretty neat. Oh, listener, I have a confession. I'm actually a fan and user of Quadlock, but I had no idea initially that Quadlock was an Ultimaker customer until the head of Ultimaker's APAC region, Benjamin Tan, pointed out that I was using Quadlock in a down-on-table angle second camera and that he not only knew Quadlock, and uh, uses them on his bikes in Melbourne, Australia. But he had met the Quadlock team and that they use Ultimakers in their business. I told Chris this story when we met because I actually am legitimately a fan and use, using your product. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, mate. It's, it's amazing how many people that pop up where they actually had exposure to it or using it for different application yeah i think your point that it's a globally recognized brand is definitely validated this is popping up in the united states and all other places i don't know that the audience necessarily even distinctively thinks oh this was born in australia or something they, they think quad luck is everywhere because because it sort of is why don't we explore the land of crowdfunding a little bit longer it won't surprise you that i'm going to ask questions about out of manufacturing a lot because mm-hmm. that's the the focus of the show sure But I do think that there uh, have been some distinctive details around using additive manufacturing in the crowdfunding ecosystem that is distinctive from how it it was used necessarily in product design before. We were seeing uh, a lot of these teams able to make functional mock-up pieces and, and really show their products off even before they have gone through the extensive processes of developing that would follow. And it seemed like a match made in heaven. 3D printing was used back then. So the business we had before doing uh, iPhone cases and quad lock and everything else, we were importing some more format laser cutters and actually got involved with reselling 3D printers as well. So it was in the uh, the BFB days. It was a UK brand, Bits for Bytes. And we were helping out one of the Aussie distributors who was bringing them into Australia. So That's cool. we were looking after the, the Melbourne region. So we had a lot of exposure to it. And also got involved with the Cube, which was through 3D Systems, because 3D Systems bought out bits for bytes. Mm-hmm. So we're reselling those printers. So that was nice that we had access to these machines yep. and this technology anyways. We had laser cutting, we had 3D printing. So we've had you know, the best of um, everything from a prototyping point of view. Uh, so we definitely were using 3D printing for validating and really quickly prototyping ideas in the early stages. But for for the finished like prototypes and things that we showed on part of our Kickstarter video and how we really tested it, we were going for more machined prototypes because we're working with some pretty fine uh, sections of materials and we just needed the extra strength and really nice surface finish that we needed to you know, show off these prototypes and, and make sure that they worked as we, we needed to. But definitely in the early stages to validate the ideas uh, and that's probably still true with what, well, how we do it now. Uh, there's nothing faster than being able to just shoot a CAD model to a 3D printer and have it a few hours later to validate it. I, and that makes a lot of sense. When you started moving to the mounting system and started dreaming up uh, Quadlock, I'd love to hear about how additive manufacturing has been useful to you at Quadlock. We are really pushing the limits of the materials and the selection of plastics can have a big impact on how our product performs. For the final prototypes, we generally still lean on uh, machining 
or if we need to do vacuum casting. So that's the final part of it. But where 3D printing comes in for us is that really early, fast validation. We come up with ideas for different products and different mechanisms all the time. And a big part of that is validating if that idea is going to work. Is really getting something in your hands. It's you know being able to use that, show people, test it, see if that mechanism works, see if that fits that, see if all kinds of things work. So we it's still been that key part to the early stage validation of ideas. You know, we have three 3D printers here. We've got three Ultimakers and they run pretty much around the clock. We're always printing out parts to test bits and pieces. And we, we still head towards machine prototypes at the final stages of it. But the tolerances and the accuracy that we're getting out of these 3D printers are still phenomenal for what they are. So, you know, some of the parts that we're, especially in the quad lock mechanism, we're, we're talking with tolerance of, you know, less than 0.1 of a mil to make these things work. And, you know, we have 3D printed parts, or we do on a regular basis, that actually still work well and connect well with our mechanism and any kind of moving components generally work pretty well. It's just, what it really adds is that speed of development. Mm -hmm. I think we can model something up and print it overnight and have it the next day where we just can't get that kind of speed with machine parts. Generally, we're getting parts machined offshore, so you're looking at about a 10-day turnaround there. But it's, yeah, the speed and the low cost of it so it's like, you know, just having a normal desktop printer, you just print something out and have a quick check. It um, doesn't cost too much, doesn't take a lot of time, but you can really validate that. And even some of the materials that are coming out for the 3D printers as well. So majority of the parts we print are in PLA. We want, um, you know, quick, easy parts that good dimension and dimensional stability and don't warp too much. But we've also done some really neat stuff with some of the TPU materials. Uh, so our, our phone case is generally a composite of polycarbonate and TPU. But we have printed phone cases out of TPU material just for fitment checks or to check some how bits are going to go together. And the TPU is amazing. It holds up quite well. We've had some test cases that we've been you know, personally using for a few weeks and it's incredible stuff. And the fact that you can print a soft, flexible part was unheard of years ago. So, yeah, no, they're very valuable in that early validation and testing stage. So in general, for these validation requirements over the last couple of years, it seems like you have done a number of products that are a key part of it is how, how fast you can enter the market and evolve and meet new demands. Is that, would you say that's an accurate portrayal of, of the challenges you faced? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's nothing really validates an idea like having it in your hands. And the quicker you can get it to that stage, the faster you can move your development forwards and, and really validate that idea works. Yeah, it's definitely a key for us to be able to move quick and make decisions too on design directions or mechanical functions of products. It's key. There's You can show people sketches and, and renderings and, and 3D CAD models, but it's nothing like if you're trying to choose between two ideas and you've got a, print, a functional printout of both parts, it just makes it so much easier to see uh, or make a decision, but also to see how people interact with it. You just you don't get that from having it virtual. If you've got a real part, you can see how people pick it up, how they use it, where they, what they're naturally drawn to, how they naturally operate it. Having a real part that quickly can get you really valuable feedback early on. And to make those decisions early on and steer the development of that product early on, it can mean huge amounts of time saving at the end of the day. Now, do you have one design office or do you have designers and, and engineering teams all around across either your global <laughs> footprint or, or even there in, in lockdown in Melbourne? Yeah, so being Melbourne-based, majority of the design work is done here. We've got a design office here with quite a few designers and engineers, but we do manufacture all our product in China. So we also have a team over there as well. So we've got some uh, product design engineer and a quality control engineer. 
So they need to have that product knowledge in dealing with all the factories that we work with. They need to understand the ins and outs of manufacturing, but also product development, obviously CAD. So yeah, so we utilize, just got those two teams, but between that network, we've got the people placed where we need them and we're communicating daily. We're always on WeChat or Zoom, getting things sorted. It works quite well. Effectively, I think what lockdown has taught us is, I guess we're doing it before lockdown anyway, like having a team, a remote team in China, we're communicating through all these online communication tools anyway. So we knew we could operate a design team from anywhere. Uh, but being you know forced into lockdown with the current climate we've had last year and unfortunately recently now in Melbourne, you know, we are able to you know work remotely and, and have people pretty much anywhere. You know we are Melbourne based, but we do have remote support team as well. You know, through this period, we've had people in all different areas of you know Melbourne and Australia still working, but as long as we get internet access, it's they can still do what they need to do. Have you tested using 3D printers for communication or distributed validation? Definitely, yeah. So when we're all in the office, it's quite easy. We can print out parts and have a design review with everybody required. Yeah. But through lockdown, that made things difficult. So what we, we actually did start doing is we had, well, we've got three 3D printers, so we distributed those between all designers and engineers. So certain people had their own little 3D printing hub set up in their house or their garage. Uh, and as they were developing products, they would generally print out parts and we became very close with the Uber drivers. They had an Uber package option. So we were Ubering uh, 3D prints all over Melbourne, sometimes seeing the same Uber driver multiple times during the day, <laughs> which was great. But that was, you know, like I said, it's nothing like having a real product in your hands. And we still needed to do that. Instead of having a group design review, we just Ubered parts all over Melbourne for people to get feedback on and jump on Zoom and then they could see what you're looking at. And yeah, it just allowed us to keep moving forwards like we is close to what we would do when we were back in the office. I love that image. I really like this idea that your team was moving forward and, and getting parts in hand so you can keep those conversations going and not drop a beat. Even though you're not physically handing it across the table, you're handing it across town and it's you're having those conversations. Yeah. In, in these times, you've got to use the tools that are available to, to do what you need to do. And for us, it was um, just finalizing a way where we could continue to follow our same design process, but um, obviously keep that done remotely. Yeah, utilizing the technology and the tools that it's available. It's amazing what you can do today, just having internet access and all the tools and businesses that have sprung up because of that. In the wake of COVID, do you think that some of these practices will continue? Maybe you'll have a lot of the folks in the local area back in an office, I guess, eventually. It has been interesting talking to a a number of folks in education, engineering, and uh, product design teams that there are elements that that came up because of the necessity of the disruption, but ended up being new, interesting best practices that they can continue to use. Do you think that some of these methods, including having a handy way how to use Uber to, to get the parts around, that will continue for Quadlock after COVID calms down eventually? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's changed everybody's lives and from a personal and from a corporate perspective as well. It's... It's definitely made working from home more acceptable. Obviously, people are forced in a situation where they've had to you know, set up shop from home and, and work remotely, spend a lot of time on, on Zoom and any other video uh, communication tool. So I think you can continue on. If you've, you're forced in a situation where that's your only option, you can make it work. There's certain aspects that you just you can't replace by that face-to-face contact. So we've noticed it just coming out of COVID for some time and getting people back in the office and having that collaboration where people are there and just chatting and you're picking up on little nuances just from casual conversation that you just don't get when you're in structured yep. zoom or conferences 
to talk about a particular issue and that's it. So I think those aspects of it are going to be difficult to replace. But moving forwards, I think we're definitely, we've definitely got more comfortable with what we can do remotely and utilizing that to our advantages. The speed that if you're using the tools in the right way, you, know, you can move things around so much faster than what we used to do. And if we wanted to get a prototype out to someone, we may have thrown it in the post and it would have taken three or four days to get there. Now, if it's local and close, we know that Uber is a much better option and it's going to get there within you know an hour or two tops, depending on how far away they are. Obviously, there's limits to how far you can do that, but still leveraging that to do from that front. And we've done that with other things as well, where we might be sending a rig to a test lab to do some vibration testing as an example. Instead of sending one of their engineers in there to drive it over to them and spend his time getting that set up, as long as the lab knows what to do, we're quite happy now to put that equipment in a Uber and send it over so that we don't have to waste the guy's time to, to go over there and set it up. So it's, yeah, it's really leveraging the tools to your advantage and making the most of it to suit your setup and how you, you want to get things done. Are you using additive manufacturing of any technologies for indirect parts? Anything from patterns to jigs and fixtures or hold downs? Internally um, in a Melbourne office, we definitely use 3D printing for making uh, a lot of text fi fixtures, uh, jigs, a lot of from a product development point of view, that's where the focus is. Even just uh, setups for holding uh, tools and uh, parts and bits and pieces in the lab setup we've got here. It's a very quick way of setting things up and testing and validating products. I've seen the guys using it around the office for replacing broken parts and spare parts here and there. It doesn't get used a huge amount over in our manufacturing facilities just because those guys are usually set up with yeah. conventional machining setups or you know, ability to create their own things. But if the right applications there, they'll definitely be using it for building up test jigs or whatever they need to do on that front of it. But yeah, I think it just goes down to having, if you've got an application for it and you've got access to the tool, then you, you may as well use it. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense. Like I know we've printed a lot of parts to improve our 3D printing setup. So from material spools or different tools and bits and pieces here, that's definitely a great option for it on that front. Nice. And, and what range of materials have you been messing with? I, I was happy to hear that you're taking advantage of TPU. We're always interested in experimenting with new materials. A lot of what we do is around you know, little mechanisms and interfaces where parts yeah. need to click together and slide together or snap together. So having materials that can provide those properties, yeah, for sure. As soon as the TPU materials are available, we jumped on those and yeah. did some experimentation. There seems to be so much development and I've seen yeah. there's companies printing with carbon fiber impregnated materials to get some really good strengths and properties. As we've been using 3D printing internally for since we started, so 10 years ago, We've tried a lot of materials and we try and stick with what works. And it is, we're generally just prototyping things. We're not making parts for longevity. So PLA is generally our go-to. We've experimented with ABS and some of the other few materials. And definitely the support materials are somewhere we're playing with. But yeah, for me, it's just getting that speed of prototype out. So if it can, if it can print the support material out of the same base material and the software is smart to do it in a way that makes it easy to tear off and break off, I'm all for it. I also like to... When I'm 3D printing parts, I'll slice them in a mm -hmm. way that minimizes the support material. Yeah, That's a big thing for me. And I think some guys rely so much on the dissolvable support material, they don't think about ways of printing it. But for me, it's about which is the face that I need to be more critical to test. Say it's an iPhone case, the internal surface is probably more important than the external because I want to make sure the phone fits. Yeah. So I'll print it in, in a way that the support materials are external because it doesn't matter too much if the external face is a bit rough. 
So it's about selecting it and orienting it in the right way to, to suit your application. I'm not a huge fan of the PVA support, but one of our designers is a big fan of it. Oh, great. Yeah, I, like we've been using it as well, yeah. both the PVA support and the breakaway support. It's just, for me, I, I'm very impatient. I like things to happen very quickly. Right. So when I 3D print a part, I just want to rip it off the machine and pull the support off and start yeah. using it. I guess one of the really interesting areas of 3D printing is getting the right materials or applications for it, which really benefit and take it to the next level. You know, so we would love to be able to 3D print our products as a you know, finished product. There's, there's a company here, Bastion Bikes, that's making bikes out of 3D printed titanium lugs and then CNC woven carbon fiber tubes. They're a really high-end bespoke bike, but they're printing parts Dang. out of titanium that you just physically could not manufacture any yeah. other way. And those types of things get me really excited about where 3D printing technology can go. It's like it's utilizing the technology to produce parts that are just not possible using mm -hmm. any other process. So I think for me, that's where I can see the manufacturing side of 3D printing really coming into its own. Yeah. Excellent. Let's look towards the future, next steps. What are other ways that you think 3D printing might be of benefit to your process in the future, projecting forward from how you're using it now? I think one of the huge benefits of 3D printing and manufacturing is that kind of stock-on-demand approach. For, for conventional businesses that are selling products, you're manufacturing in volume and you're manufacturing in bulk. You have to do that to get your economies of scale. But that does mean you are holding and um, storing and shipping a lot of stock, which generally, and once you do that, you don't want to send things back and forwards. It's kind of a one-directional thing. So I think in the right application, the digitization of your stock holding is phenomenal like the opportunities that opens up and we've dabbled it a little bit we have done things before where we've used the shapeway service to produce parts for us a big part of our brand is being this quad lock blue color and we have it on the locking collar on the bike mount and on the lever on a lot of other mounts mm -hmm. and that blue is quite unique to our brand it's an iconic recognizable part of our product but certain applications or people they want a particular color it's a stylist so you know cyclists or motorcyclists they're fairly specific about the aesthetic and the color of how their bike looks. Um, so there's been a lot of applications where people don't particularly want that blue collar. They want a black one or they want a red one that matches their bike. And for us, producing colors in volumes was just not really fathomable back then. Uh, and we looked at ways of doing so. And we we printed some parts through the Shapeway service. Yeah, I think there's their SLS parts, which they can then dye yeah. in different colors. And we'd done some trial parts. So I printed off a range of all the different materials and got them back and, and thrown them on the mounts and found that the durability and the accuracy was sufficient enough to make the part work you know, pretty close to what an injection molded part would be. What it did do is it enabled that part to be printed. Back then, I think there was about six or seven different colors. So I had the file on Shapeways. They had an ability to set that up as a store. So we just put it up there. So we made it a public part that yeah. was available, and we redirected it off our um, website saying, if you're looking for a different color, here's an option to do so. And in the early days, there wasn't a huge amount of take up, but it just ticked along in the background. It just ran. Mm -hmm. And then after a few you know, weeks or months, we'd check back and go, oh, look, sold a few parts through there. And over time, that started to build up to the point where you know, we'd sold quite a few hundreds of these different parts in the 3D printed material. And I think the business was growing and the demand for the product was growing as well. So it got it to a point where like, all right, the scales in there are sufficient for us to actually consider actually injection molding these parts in a few different colors. But we went through all the Shapeway stats and that looked at which were the most popular colors. And that made it very easy for us to go, all right, these are the top three colors. Let's mold these in these colors because we know we'll sell them and away we go. 
Uh, so that was really good way to really you know validate the demand for the product, make the decisions on all the colors, and, and improve that it was a process that could work. So I don't think there's any other way we would have been able to do that. That was great. Like every aspect of our business outside of the physical product has been you know virtual. Uh, e-commerce platform we use is Shopify, so all that's done web-based. All our logistics side of things are done through a 3PL, so a third-party logistics provider. So we, we manufacture the product in China, but then that ships out to a network of global 3PL warehouses. And when the customer buys a product online, it ships from one of those warehouses. So we physically don't see or touch like 99% of what we actually manufacture. Wow. Yeah, our guys in China do. So we could virtually run this business from just about anywhere. And if we could actually manufacture the parts using a 3D printed process, we literally could utilize those manufacturing hubs where your customers are and to get your product to your customer in such a short turnaround time. It'd be amazing. And the ability that it's digital means that you can make iterations and updates to the product without having to be concerned about stock levels or all the nightmares that it gives you from a logistics and inventory point of view. Yeah, if you can utilize 3D printing or if you're in the right application to use 3D printing as your manufacturing process, you've turned a physical product into a digital one. It's the ultimate dream. It's just, yeah, it depends on the right industry to, to use it. If you had advice for other uh, product teams that uh, are looking to leverage additive manufacturing to be useful for anything from concepting through to validating parts before manufacturing, what advice do you have for them? Oh, look, if they don't have a 3D printer already, definitely get one. Just having the technology in your office is a huge enabler. I think just having something there, you're more likely to use it and not delay or put things off. And you'll be surprised how many different areas it can become useful in, not just in you know, product development, but in, like I was saying before, testing jigs, fixing components, all those types of areas. So it's, it's definitely huge. But obviously from design teams and engineers, it makes sense because they are already thinking down that path. But if it's other businesses outside of that, I think yeah. it's you're seeing more and more people you know, take on these machines that aren't necessarily that knowledgeable or skilled in the space. I guess having 3D printing, you get a lot of friends knocking on your door saying, hey, I've got this broken part, can you print me a new one? And we've done that in many applications. But I think it's one of the, I guess it's kind of like having a, a desktop printer. If you've got a printer, you can download a file and you can print it. But if you don't know how to use an a image, or image processing software or word processing software, you can only really create what's already out there. So a big thing that I think that's really supporting 3D printing is the accessibility to 3D CAD and 3D scanning and all these tools that are making CAD a bit more accessible and a, and a bit easier to use. So I definitely think if you are considering getting into 3D printing and you've had no exposure to CAD, you know, jump into it now. There's so many free online tools and have got really good introductions to the basics of how 3D CAD works, right up to the end of it where um, there's the line between programming and CAD is blurring at the high end as well. You're seeing some really amazing stuff come out of using Rhino and Grasshopper where they've got this really generative software developed patterns and designs and it's moving into the fashion industry and doing things that are just, mm -hmm. they just are not possible using any other material or any other manufacturing techniques. So it's, yeah, the, the, the sooner you can start playing with it and tinkering with it, the more ideas and applications that will spring out of it. Yeah, jump into it. Fantastic. Now, if the uh, listeners have managed not to get Quadlock somehow, how can they go learn more? Yeah, so the best place is to head to quadlockcase.net and that'll ping you off to your, your local site. 
It's got all the products on there and even just Googling Quadlock, I'm sure you'll come across it and find it. We're predominantly online, but there are definitely uh, certain retailers that are stocking it. Thanks, Chris, so much. Uh, thank you very much for joining, for talking out of today and, and, and sharing your thoughts and your experiences with uh, 3D printing. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's been great to be on. It's um, awesome to see what you guys are doing and looking forward to see where 3D printing goes in the future. Chris, thank you very much. Brilliant. This was fantastic. Thanks again to Chris from Quadlock. For our next story, we head to Germany for Trinkle. Ola von Seelen is the head of business development, marketing and sales from Trinkle 3D. So my name is Ole von Seelen and I am head of business development, marketing and sales at Trinkle. Trinkle is a Berlin-based software company uh, that was founded by three PhD students from Berlin's universities back in 2013. And we are specialized on the automation of 3D printing design processes. The Trinkle team works with companies to produce configurators for applications using their 3D software Paramate, a modular high-performance cloud platform for repetitive design processes and advanced product customization. As a result, the solutions then allow end-users to 3D print an entire family of parts resolved by the Paramate software, permitting parametric adjustments to suit the latest requirements. So first of all, thank you very much for joining, for talking out of today. Uh, really great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. When did you first encounter 3D printing? I think that was during my, doing my PhD. I did my PhD in B2B marketing, mostly with, within the sector of machining companies in, I think it was 2014. And back then, Florian, a friend of mine and co-founder of Trinkle, uh, told me about 3D printing and the company he was founding at the time. And um, I found it really interesting because... I really only knew the old world of production back then, where everything was about fighting tiny market shares. And when I then took a look at additive manufacturing, everything was developing so fast and the technologies changes overnight, new materials came up every day, basically, and or every week, maybe. So it was a very different world. And I was really fascinated by the speed, the progress, and also by the idea of combining lab, cloud-based software and 3D printing all at once. And how did this map to your, your training, your interests, your previous jobs? Actually, it was a, a jump because I was used to being a more quantitative person, uh, a lot of research in this area to do my PhD, so a more theoretical. And then I was really very quickly cured by the world of being part of an AM startup. So startup and AM both at the time. Everything was very fast and pragmatic, had to be done quick and move forward fast. Fail fast, actually, as well. So how did you adapt to this? Did you enjoy the crazy high speeds and new paradigms of startup plus additive? Yeah, at the beginning, it was kind of scary, but I really liked the challenge. And what was most fascinating for me in this new role still is for being head of business development at Trinkle is that we always have the chance to develop fully new business models for our clients. So it's very rare that we see use cases over and over again. It's always something different from very different industries. So this is, I think, the fact I most appreciate about my job. And I think some of this is even distinctive to the particular niche within additive that you're filling. How would you define 
Trinkle in its goals in the early days? What kinds of problems were you looking to solve? There still is one central problem, which is fundamental to understand why Trinkle and its software is, is needed or can, can bring the industry forward. And that is a comparison of the conventional manufacturing and additive manufacturing. So if you take a look at conventional manufacturing and you think of the design process involved, designing a part or a product is a really complex task. And that's why you have smart designers and you have very advanced CAD software. So for the conventional manufacturing, it's fully okay to spend a lot of time and money on one design because at a later stage, it will be produced in very high volumes. We are talking about thousands, millions of parts being produced from this single design you made in the very beginning. But now that we've um, shifted to AM, uh, we always claim to realize individual parts, so small volumes, or even fully customized parts. So if you then think again and imagine we would spend hours or days for each individual design, then we pretty sure will kill the business cases behind those applications. There, there need to be a shift in the way we approach designing when we talk about additive manufacturing applications. So basically there are two routes for us that we see to overcome uh, these hurdles. And the one route would be that we try to accelerate the speed that designers can use while designing parts. So we try to automate, especially the repetitive design processes that they face. So we are improving their efficiency. So designers of today making more efficiently their designs for additive manufacturing. Or the other route would be even enabling new people that do not have design skills today and they do not have experience in 3D printing so far, but we still might be able to enable them to design or at least adapt parts for their individual needs. And these two routes, that is what we try to address with our software, which is which we call Paramate. And it can be thought of as a software system for design automation. And, and it can have those two different aspects um, of design automation. That's really a helpful description, not only of Trinkle, but of some of the opportunities of additive manufacturing in this space. Now, when Trinkle was starting in 2014, how well did companies understand the possibilities of additive to even address things in the nimble way that you help them do now? Yeah, to be honest, most companies, not at all back then. When I remember these first years in the industry, for most companies, it was mainly of understanding how the technology works, how the hardware works, how the material works. Of course, there were already specialists back then. The technology is far older, of course, but it was not a broadly spread knowledge about the technology and the chances it has. Back then, we started the company, but there was really no need discovered yet for most of the companies. So most companies were fully fine by having two, three specialists. They were doing the prototyping. They were doing the first designs and everybody was happy and fascinated what these cool new machines could do. 
and nobody really cared about how to scale such a business case in a later stage. That makes sense from what we've been learning from the companies we've been working with as well, especially when considering things like in the early days of industrial 3D printing before the entrance of desktop 3D printing, 3D printing had a very specific role. It was rapid prototyping. It was evaluating those last parts before manufacturing. And so it was just a, a new and cool tool that people could use. But it seems that since 2012, 2013, 2014, the potential applications have exploded. What purpose you might put to this technology and the whole industry has been learning together. How has Trinkle been able to, to help with enlarging the, the stakeholders, the number of stakeholders who can be involved with part design, part validation and use? On the one hand, we are trying to help the designers to be faster, but we also, like you said, we want to open the technology for a broader audience or maybe not even audience, but users. If we always require the entry point for an additive manufacturing use case to be a highly educated designer, plus the having the experience in additive manufacturing, then I think the technology is more or less predefined to be a niche technology. The idea would be to open up those use cases where the integration of the end user might be beneficial. We need to include them in the design process. We need to get them into interaction with our design processes. And only if we can do that, we can realize all those nice mass customization use cases, which we described years ago, and we created all these nice PowerPoint slides for. I feel that struggle. That's fantastic. Time has caught up with what you already identified quite early on. And now you can regularly see even traditional manufacturing being really curious about this. Can we talk a little bit now about how Trinkle addresses this? Yeah. So if I try to put it in a nutshell, we, we try to create algorithm-driven design workflows per application. So the software we're developing, you shouldn't imagine it as the one software that we, you download to your PC and you get a license and you can do whatever with it in, for your future AM projects. It's more as an application-based software. And you could imagine it as a platform. It's modular. It's meant for being used in the cloud. So it's all dedicated to high-performance cloud usage. And it's trying to, yeah, to clear the path from repetitive design efforts for the manual user. What we do is with this software platform, we take a certain application from a client and then we try to combine, on the one hand, algorithm-driven CAD, algorithm-driven operations, with intuitive and hopefully interactive configuration interfaces. So at the end, there will be a user interface, and it does not necessarily have to be part of the software. It can be a website, it can be part of your intranet page if it's an internal application. It could be a mobile app, anything really. And this interaction of algorithms and intuitive interaction by the end user. This is the key and I think the unique characteristics that we have in our system. I really wanna dwell on this distinction that you offer. You talk about application-specific solutions. It's not part-specific. It's application-specific. And that's really interesting because I think in, in a certain sense, a lot of companies, when they're first adopting additive, they spend a lot of time and energy solving each part. 
and, and in some cases, just starting back to zero. And when you say application specific, you're not saying that. You actually have with the, the whole apparatus you mentioned there of the ways to continue to configure that are built into the effort that, that you put into providing the tools that will be used, the ability to accommodate other things that match that application. Can you talk more about how that works and how Trinkle is able to address this, which is a unique design challenge. Yeah, you mentioned configuration. Yeah, and this is very important. Actually, what we call our applications is mostly configurators. It's a little bit mixed up vocabulary, I know, because you see a lot of configurators already in the web. And most of the time, it's about changing color or uh, changing the material. But we are really talking about configuration of designs from a geometrical point of view. You're completely right. We are not optimizing one particular part. We are talking about configurating families of parts or groups of parts. So whenever we come across an application where 3D printing is used to create variations of a geometry. So for example, you want to bring up, let's take a consumer example. You want to create a pair of glasses. You want to create an eyewear frame. And you want to do that custom for your end customer in the way that the this pair of glasses matches the geometry of the face, for example. Then you need to have an individual geometry for each customer. It might be adapted to the scan of a face, for example. So what we try then is we try to set up a workflow for this particular product to be configured, driven by maybe a scan or maybe some input defined, aesthetical input maybe defined by the end customer itself. So it's not the task to create the one super nice design for a 3D printed eyewear. It's about creating a workflow for a scalable application for individual eyewear using additive manufacturing. That's really fantastic. And it's, as I have been echoing throughout here, this is exciting territory because it's it's drawing on so much of what's possible with additive in ways that can be really tricky, even from a business perspective, once you really account for not just the cost to use whatever fabrication process you use at the end, but the design and validation implications of really making sure that you have a lot of confidence in the part that you're making, that it meets its needs so that more parts of that company can can focus on the process of producing it and getting it to the end user. This is pretty exciting. So I want to talk about the realities of looking at traditional manufacturing processes versus this new route that you offer. In a traditional manufacturing process, and this is definitely simplified, you have clear scope and parameters set up for what you're producing so that you can meet that need. You design the part, then you validate that your design was correct. And you might even have analysis to assess how successful your solution was and to prepare the way for manufacturing. You know, can it stay within tolerances? All this laborious process just to really commit to a moment where you have a fixed pattern and now you're ready to run it at large scale. Do you want to talk about how you're able to draw on all these different sort of departments of design and, and uh, design for manufacturing consideration so that uh, a company can have this configurator that helps them produce this family of parts? Yeah, so what you mentioned or the topic you tackle now is probably one of the 
biggest hurdles those serial production applications have in 3D printing. Because you're completely right, in conventional manufacturing, there's this one moment, this one version of the design which get then cleared and is ready for production. If we have a family of parts or a family of a product and it could have all yeah, unlimited numbers of combinations, there is not this one design which we can give to approval and then everything is finalized. So we have to handle a lot of rules and constraints. And when we clear something with our clients, let's say their quality department, for instance, then we have to clear a full range. We have to get a generic go a generic green lighting from those departments and that makes it so complicated because most companies don't think that way or never thought that way so they have really to get more familiar and more and more accommodated with this this vision and with the technology in total this is also why you see so little applications in terms of end consumer parts on the market for an end consumer company to offer individualized parts it's not so much about oh yeah there's the hurdles about surface quality or the material characteristics of a part what is most scary for those companies is that it's completely off their regular processes and rules and quality assurance they have in their companies applied. This is what makes it so hard for them. And that's why we see way more applications so far in the industrial sector where those hurdles are simply a little lower. They are still high, but it's easier to overcome and it's more directed to the added values of a specialized part. They outweigh the fear you might have of an unfamiliar process. It would seem to me, looking external and looking at specific cases like the the Ford case that Altamaker and Trinkle did a story that, that covered uh, a couple years ago, it would seem that this would open up the possibility also for more people to be involved with the fabrication process from the standpoint of you clear this class of products, this family of, of parts that could be made. And then more people could potentially make adjustments, not just an end user, but you know, you talked about industrial uses. The end user and industrial process are those closest to the industrial process. And do you want to talk about how this changes things for having having it so that if you want to make an adjustment that can be fulfilled by the configurator, you don't necessarily have to go back to design and start from scratch to make a minor adjustment. The whole idea is that this is actually possible. So there is a new requirement in your application. You just take a new iteration of the configurator. And as long as you, as long as you move within the, let's say, the constraints and the limits of this configurator, whatever comes out, it is functional and it's producible. That's the whole idea. So by definition, when we set up such a design workflow, we have to understand the design in full, in the full range. We need to define with our clients exactly what combinations can be achieved within the configurator, what independencies might be popping up between the different variables used. And so at the end of the day, it's a whole net of 
connections and restrictions and dependencies from variable to variable. And this is why there is simply no other way of dealing with it other than scripting those designs. And um, this is the, the core really of our application that in the center, there is a kernel, which is fully optimized for script-based designing. Uh, we developed that because we didn't find a proper solution on the market back then. Uh, so we decided to develop this ourselves. And the whole idea of this kernel to simplify design scripting and to make it more performant, because at the end of the day, whatever design we want to achieve is supposed to be calculated in almost no time. I don't say no time, but almost no time. At the end of the day, we want to see applications that can run in the cloud and where a user gives a new input and he sees the result immediately, basically. One element that I forgot to ask you about before we go to the case studies in specific, what are the range of manufacturing processes, including additive, featuring additive, that you you account for in your configurators? And then as a follow-up, what industries does that open up? Yeah, our company was basically born in additive manufacturing. So right now our focus is still on AM technologies. But when it comes to the question, what technologies and what materials, there are no really limitations for this. So all 3D printing technologies are supported. We can apply automated workflows in there, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what kind of 3D printing technology you choose. And it also matters a lot what material you use uh, or you want to use for 3D printing at the end. It just means that we need to incorporate these decisions about the technologies and the materials you, you plan to use within those rules and constraints that you set up in the very beginning. So it makes, of course, a, a world of a difference if we are talking about SLS or FFF. So it will just have other implication on the design rules, which we then implement into the workflow. And coming back to the industries we serve, in the very beginning, we were really eager. Uh, so maybe it was our youth back then, but we more or less, we tried to attack every industry that was going into additive. So we did applications in, in automotive, in robotics, in engineering a lot. And in the very beginning, we um, focused a lot on also customized consumer products, but that's probably not the easiest area you can try to tackle. So what we lately focus on are basically two very important fields of the additive industry, which is on the one hand medical applications, so especially orthopedics, and on the other hand, and this is not really an industry, but jigs, fixtures, and production aids. This field support the production industry with additive manufactured applications is, from our perspective, the, the most interesting field of these years. Ultimaker has had a sort of similar trajectory. And one of the areas where I think we overlap, when it comes to the industrial sector itself or industrial parts, and we often refer to them as either manufacturing aids or indirect parts. There has been, particularly of late, more acceptance of the kind of output from all added manufacturing processes. And, it, and this has to do a little bit with what you were talking about before, 
that if you're making a part for a general consumer to use, they might pick it up and the first thing they might think about, and you know, how does this compare to an injection molded part? And it's like, it's a completely different process. And the amount of labor that would need to go into, say, an FFF part to make it look like an injection molding part is, is probably not worth it in a lot of cases. But with industry, where the goal often is more on the pragmatics of, I need a part that can really meet its engineering needs, there seems to be a lot more acceptance for a range of additive solutions that meet those needs. And I wonder if over time that will also spread out beyond that as people realize that that you know, making the steps to produce something in a way that's really targeted is making a result that's actually not only more efficient for probably their needs, but more mindful of the resources on the planet, much less uh, resources produce that part. Let's really focus on Trinkle and the, some of the case studies that will really illustrate a, a finite set of how this approach could be applied. So what case study would you like to start with today? Yeah, so maybe customized parts vision we, we might have for many applications in additive manufacturing and we have a very interesting use case in the field of robotics. So there is a company in Germany, which is called Schmalz. It's the market leader for vacuum robotic components. Basically the grippers you put at the end of arm tool of a robotic system. So this company, for instance, was prototyping with additive manufacturing for ages, for years. It makes a lot of sense because in robotics, you have a lot of individual parts and individual geometries. You want to try out things fast and iterate fast. And it's quite often about lightweight components. That's the reason why you would 3D print those items for those robotic components. And after a couple of years of getting more and more familiar with the, with the production methods. They were thinking about, okay, how do we get this into a use case now or a business case for us? And they thought, of course, of lightweight grippers. And they thought, of course, of, let's say, individualized lightweight grippers. So for very special applications. So not the typical, you have to move a box around from A to B, but maybe you have to move certain packages from A to B, which look quite unfamiliar to your regular use cases. So for those, they would try to design custom gripper geometries, but it would take them sometimes a day, sometimes two to do those design drafts. And then the big hustles just started because they would have to discuss those designs with their customers. It would take ages before they even have a first quote out there. And it could be weeks and weeks before they actually get the deal for such an individualized gripper. So that's when we got in touch with them and discussed our application. And what you see now on their website is you, that you can go there you upload the part that you actually want to move around or want to lift, and then you start a configuration for it. So you describe how much does it weight? What kind of material surface are we talking about? And then the system will play back, okay, for that weight, you need at least six suction cups to create the correct vacuum to lift it up. And um, after that, you will be asked, okay, please place those suction cups on the part. So what you literally do is you open up the application and you uh, click on the right spots on this particular part, which you uploaded in the first place, and the rest will be done by the system. The, so it will connect all those suction cups 
with the overall vacuum chamber, which is centralized on top of it. So it's free floating somewhere on top of the pod. And all those suction cups will be connected with vacuum channels, which are optimized for this, for this situation. And the only thing you still have to do, you have to pick the right components, which is the right vacuum technology you want to use, which is the right robotic system you want to connect. And the system will add all those little components, which are actually not even 3D printed anymore. And so you combine the 3D printing overall geometry of the gripper, but you also include metal standard flange to connect to the robotic system. Or for example, those suction cups themselves, they are um, made from plastic and they are injection molded. There is no, no way and no meaning for producing them additively. So at the end of this process, you will have a fully assembled gripper that consists of maybe 20 components and you will get a bill of material. So it will list all the components and then you have a button where you basically say, okay, now I would like to see a quote from Schmaltz and they will take a look at it. Right now there is no price directly on the website, so we'll, they will take it back make a proper proposal, but they already have all the components which they have to assemble in the last step. So at the end of the day, it's really an e-commerce business case for an industrial company, for a high-complex product. And, and that's it's definitely different than you usually expect when it comes to these kind of custom industrial solutions. In checking the case study on your site, there's a note that it speeds up engineering by 90%. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I told you that a designer, an experienced designer, industrial designer would need at least eight hours to do such a design. Of course, we have to do these wor this work in advance. So we have to predefine all those rules and restrictions that might be included. And we need to think of algorithms that are smart enough to combine all potential it input situations to a meaningful outcome. So we have spent a lot of time in setting this up, but then if this is once in place, all the decision for the users can be done in minutes. So basically you can create such a robotic system, such a gripper in, in 10, 15 minutes or so. Probably the longest it will take is really doing a nice choice which kind of material of the suction cups you want. But all the geometry creation, which is the really effortful part for a designer, uh, which has a lot to do with freeform geometries, connecting one point with another in space and creating a good connection geometry between this. This is a lot of effort for a manual designer, but not for an algorithm if you have created a script for it. It's almost like you're capturing all of the knowledge and value that Trinkle has for how to solve these kind of things into a subroutine that then the customer just can keep drawing on whenever they want without having to repeat that ground up knowledge building and testing and experimenting. It's not only our experience, of course. We are not a specialized company only for robotic grippers or for orthosis. So it's the, the input and the experience of our clients, of course. So they have to define the concepts, but what we are specialized in is translating those concepts and this experience into script-based design. So this is a d very different concept from the traditional way of designing parts, because our 
developers for our applications, they are not just designers. And I, I don't want to, to blame any designer, but they have to be designers plus uh, programmers to do it perfectly right, making our applications unique. So maybe we jump uh, to a medical application case before, and maybe we can end up in jigs and fixtures, because I do agree with you that this is also a very important aspect. So let's jump to medical then. The most common applications we would see are for orthoses and prosthetics. There are a couple of companies we work together on those applications and there is mostly about creating an orthosis, let's say, based on the scan of a patient's leg. These applications are in progress and in work for a couple of years now. The first drafts of it all over the place. But there are also some very new applications and I want to introduce one thing that we just released two weeks ago. And I really like it because it is thought of using additive manufacturing for medical applications in a very different way I haven't seen before. Our customer in this case is Protic. It's a leading industrial 3D printing service provider in Germany. So they are really focusing on industrial 3D printing, very advanced materials and technologies. What they do now is they focus on applications as well. So they don't just rely on uh, customers to come to them to develop cool things, but they also try to get more or integrate deeper into the overall processes. So now they are diving into medical and they are having a use case for orthopedic shoes. So very special pa patient specific products that so far have been really dominated by very conventional production methods. We're not even talking about digital production methods so far. Uh, a lot of that was handcrafting. Um, so if you want to produce an orthopedic shoe, what the first thing you need is a last. So you need an individual last to build the shoe around it, basically, I've learned. And these lasts have been produced from wood and they have been milled or even handcrafted. And it was a very expensive and especially time-consuming aspect. Most of this was would be done somewhere in Asia and it would take weeks and weeks until the orthopedic uh, shoemaker would actually have the last. So you would, as a customer, you would wait for, for months for your new shoes. So it's almost like ordering a car or something like this. So speeding this up, these lasts can be easily 3D printed. In this case, we are talking about SLS. And the biggest hurdle then was, okay, how can we get the orthopedic shoemaker involved in this process? Because they are far away from the digital design processes it would be needed, that would be needed for 3D printing. So in, in this case, we started to, we started an application which is based on the process the shoemakers seeing today. So today what they're having is not a 3D scan. No orthopedic shoemaker has a 3D scanner, but a 2D scanner is quite familiar to them. So you would get an image basically of the, of the outline of your shoe. And that's what you upload to the application. And then you try to redesign this, uh, this outline and we will have an default geometry of a shoe last at the starting point. And all the things you will do from that moment on is you will morph this last. You will tweak it around, you will pull here and push there a little bit. And all based on measures which you as a shoemaker are really familiar to. So the overall process is 
the, the interesting thing about it is that it's so close to the traditional way a shoemaker is thinking. So it's not taking him somewhere on the other side of the planet and, and, and pulling him to a situation where it's so unfamiliar that he cannot possibly create something meaningful. He will be able to do that from the very beginning. So it's all about the intuitiveness of this user experience here. I had the pleasure to show it last week to a potential client, a company which is specialized on, on orthopedic shoes. And in this virtual demonstration I gave, I uh, really could see the, the smile on the face of the technician there. It's not our idea to replace let's say, in this case, the orthopedician. There is no way we could do it. It's so much harder to teach an engineer about all the medical aspects than the other way around. So what we try to do is we try to enable those guys to do the engineering steps, at least for use cases where it's, where it's somehow planable what they might need. We, the idea is not to teach them all aspects about CAD and so on. There are reasons why we have designers at the same time. And so maybe they won't be able to fulfill 100% of all potential design jobs with such a web-based tool. But even if it's only 80%, it would be already great. There was one important lesson from this use case. We tended to always try to 3D print everything, like the end result parts. Five years ago, we would have said, yeah, yeah, okay, let's print the orthopedic shoe. And you might, you might ask then, okay, why would you even do that? The orthopedic shoemaking is individual for ages. Um, and it's quite easy to do this with the technologies we have. So why should we represent or reproduce the whole thing with additive if it doesn't add any benefit? But here in this case, we use additive to produce faster and cheaper the individual, so better um, tools for this process. As long as we are focusing on those niche applications, but can add value to the overall process, I'm totally fine if we're not printing the final shoe. That, that makes sense. So then let's go on to the third case. You said another yes. jigs and fixtures case. Yes. It's again from the automotive industry, but maybe before I start on, on, on this particular case, I want to point out that all those jigs and fixture cases from my perception are really so interesting because they are the low hanging fruits for additive manufacturing. Most of those components and tools are really simple geometries. It's really not the most sexy geometry you could imagine, which you would display at a fair or so on. So in this particular case, we're talking about assembly fixtures. And our customer in this use case was Audi Sport, a part of Audi that are producing the sports cars like the R8. So we are still talking about serial production, but in a lower volume. So maybe, I don't know exactly the numbers, a thin ice here, but I would say 10,000 cars per year or something like this. And in those, in those production sites, you would still have a lot of manual labor steps. So you need a lot of those very simple tools not spectacular, but they make your life easier as a worker on the shop floor. And an application which those guys saw over and over again were very simple assembly fixtures. The only purpose of such a fixture is holding a part in place while you do something with it. It could be assembling to another one, gluing or mounting, or it just may be holding it in place while you want to post-process something. 
uh, on it. So the idea of such a fixture is basically that you have it in place and it's either fully sinking in into some kind of a shadow board or it's folded by some kind of pillar structure. And those colleagues at Audi back then, they explained to us, we can design all those parts. It's not such a big deal. Like every designer for additive manufacturing could do it easily, but it just piles up on their desk. Like all their colleagues come over and say, okay, you have these great, these great FDF printers. So could you easily do this and that for me? You did it for my colleague last week. So can you do it again? And of course, they want to satisfy all their internal clients on the shop floors. They're quite happy because it took so many years until 3D printing usage lifted off. And now they come into the next problem that they simply don't have the capacity to do all this. So again, there are those two routes, either making their job way faster or getting other not trained users on board to create those fixtures themselves. And uh, this is what we did in this project. So we set up an application where you would simply upload the part which you want to hold in place. You would, you would orientate it in the way you like it. And then you would define where should be those touch areas and how strong should they be and how far should the part sink in into this overall. And maybe you want to adapt it with, with a clamp. So, of course, not a 3D printed one. You would integrate conventionally manufactured clamp, but you would like to predefine the mounting geometry so that at, at the later stage, when you assemble the whole fixture, you just take it from the center components from a box and you mount it on the predefined area for it and it will fit perfectly the situation you wanted to create. So, in such an application, you will end up with a very individual situation of a jig in maybe five minutes or so. And at the end, how much time would it save? Maybe you came from two hours per part. And if you have to do that for a whole production facility, it will add up. Now they even start doing this for other facilities and they still have the, the, the capacity to do so. With such a tool, we can help the 3D printing departments within manufacturing company to really leverage the potential of this technology. And this is also coming back to an earlier question of yours. You asked how long did it take until our software really found their application? It took as long as companies needed to get familiar with the 3D printing technology to come into the situation that you run out of design capacity. And um, so for a company that is about to start with 3D printing, I would recommend get yourself a, a very simple 3D printer. You don't need to go into the highest advanced levels of 3D printing. An FAFF printer is just fine to get going. You will find the first applications. In the beginning, you will prototype and learn a lot about the design. And at some point, you will want more. You will want to leverage those printers in more, let's say, repetitive applications to make it scalable, really. And in this moment, you also need to think of a way how this could be done in a design process, how you could get the whole thing going for the full production side, for all the people on the workshop, and not only for those few 
3D printing experts. Uh, with that, I think we should wrap up our discussion. Uh, so thank you very much again for joining Talking Additive today. It was my pleasure. Uh, this is really insightful. Our final segment today for Talking Additive episode 27 takes us to Additive Flow, based out of the UK. Co-founder and CEO Alexander Pluk shares Additive Flow's multifunctional software that addresses multi-material, multi-parameter process capabilities for additive manufacturing. Alexander delves into the new roles for optimization in additive workflows and how this approach is bringing greater value to and solving trickier problems for industrial and engineering design customers. Alexander, thank you so much for joining. Uh, really happy to talk to Additive Flow on Talking Additive today. My absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Matt. My name is Alexander Pluk and I'm CEO of Additive Flow. Excellent. And uh, what is Additive Flow? So Additive Flow is a software company. We're developing the next generation of optimization tools that are really focusing on this material-centric approach. So looking at how different material properties can be handled, allocated, and exploited within additive manufacturing and other processes as well. We've got a whole bunch of different algorithms and optimization techniques if we want to get technical. But in, in short, users come in, they put in their design space, they can select, say, the physics, the actions on that object across multiple types. And then our tool gives the answer, where do you place which material property? And at the same time, do you want to change your geometry as well? And when we say material properties, we're looking at things like processing parameters, infill types and formats, also materials of themselves. And we can build relationships between these variables of material properties against your physics. So what's the mechanical properties? What are the thermal properties? Maybe you might have a material property A that's really great thermally, material property B that's great mechanically. And very often you have this kind of challenge as an engineer, which do I choose? This component has multiple needs and our capability helps solve that problem. Not just a naive approach of saying this part's hot, so let's put the conductive material and, and this part's subject to stress, let's put the strong material, but it's really looking within the part as a whole and how to meet something called an objective function. And so this multi-objective uh, optimization is allowing users and engineers to do a very important thing. And that's actually to tell the software what it is that you want. And it's a capability that we've got that additive flow that I feel is quite special and that allows a, a really seamless, easy way to customize the particular case you're working on. So, for example, you might care about cost and the relationship between a particular material property and the cost of your part. Uh, you, you might really uh, be focusing on high performance applications and you've got a part that's got a really you know, strutted stuff in action. And so there you really want to make sure that your different physics are being handled properly. And so you can put in an assemble if you're caring about a displacement constraint or a stress constraint, or you may have frequency considerations as well. On top of that, you might be thinking about how you're handling a certain manufacturing constraints, right? We're talking about additive now, and you know, you'd want to handle your 45 degree angle or other arbitrary angles. 
And that's something you can also pull within these objectives, this objective optimization workflow. Matt, you've got the privilege of having seen our software in action, but to explain to the viewers that they haven't seen it, it's effectively a kind of series of nodes where you see the data flow between those and each sort of family of nodes are focusing on your boundary conditions. So these are kind of where on my model is the effect or the force or the temperature that feeds into the second family, which are like our physics, our calculation engines. And so this is then saying, based on these particular forces, on this particular shape, what is the mechanical effect in terms of stress or displacement or so on? And the same for the other physics that we also accommodate. There's a question I ask all of the guests coming on the show. When did you first encounter additive manufacturing and, and what was that like? So my academic background is actually non-engineering, right? I was touching upon principles such as optimization, more from an econometric perspective, and we handled concepts like data science. That's really where my passions were, but also thinking about how is it applied. And I was just a year or so on graduation and I saw a new scientist article on what was, I think, then really 3D printing, right? Now we're talking about the derivative manufacturing. And then I thought, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And it gives much more freedom to organizations. And that's when the passion hit. And I feel after that, it changes the way that you look at the world, right? Sometimes if you're not coming from an engineering background, I think engineers have this privilege of having a view more, at least of how things are made or what's happening. But I think sometimes there can be this disconnect between the objects we interact with and uh, how they're made. And I think just, I don't know, something about that and the freedom and possibility of it uh, really opens up and you start thinking about every object around you. And since then, I've been hooked. So you got excited about this topic. And what was the route from there to driving in the direction of co-starting Additive Flow and being a uh, CEO for this company? So I'm deeply passionate about sustainability. I really care about what the impact is of materials, what the potential is for innovation to improve the human condition. And so I really kind of was initially struck by the potential for material freedom as a way maybe within smaller production first for organizations to experiment with maybe materials that are more sustainable and or designs that use less weight. And that could really have a big impact on, on the planet as a whole. So that's the key initial focus, right? But what can we do with this technology? Fantastic. And also, I said the whole economic story. So how do we make sure businesses win? How do we align that ability for profit maximization? How do we ensure that we're sustainable at the same time? Oh, that's fantastic. Would you like to tell the story of the origins of Additive Flow? Happy to. I, I heard just a little bit of it from Charles. It sounded really interesting. No, thank you. So at Additive Flow, we actually started out building hardware, right? And this was a multi-material polymer machine. They had twin screw extruders, and we were putting all these hoppers in, recycled materials, composites, et cetera, and making functional gradients right, with this hardware. Uh, and that was, we're really lucky to have um, been awarded Innovate UK project. That's UK government funding. We're working with NHS on orthotics production that was sustainable. And so it's like dream project. And we were building this hardware and we successfully delivered this machine to POC. And we, we were talking with kind of the, the software vendors at the time and saying, this is the machine that we're building. 
Will you be able to handle its material freedom? Will you be able to um, help our customers then, we're thinking the, the hardware users, to, to use this machine? And everyone said, yes, of course. When it came to having delivered this kind of POC, we looked at the market and it was one of the form nexts, I think it was 2017 form next, and we thought, oh my word, really the, the software industry hasn't progressed in the way that we need. And this massive challenge more broadly of additive, which is how do you choose a material? How can you harness this complexity? Really is still in the, you know, the protein stages of being solved. And that's when at that time, very sadly, the, the engineering director that we had uh, actually contracted cancer. Fortunately, he uh, recovered, but it also enabled a shift uh, of focus when we were aware that we needed to handle the software challenge. And so it's then when I met Charles, he'd just come back to London from really exciting technology work in the Netherlands uh, with industry in 3D printing, et cetera, and explained to him what we were doing with the hardware, explained what our vision was around the software that would help engineers really harness this potential from the materials perspective and the geometry side. And he says, I came to London looking to start something exciting and uh, this would be great. So he joined his CTO then and the rest is history or maybe the beginning of history. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Now you bring out some really key things there. For one thing, when it comes to doing working with multiple materials and, and this multi-objective focus of added flow, the players in that space so far are few. The processes are cumbersome. And it's really, you, you stepped into a really challenging set of goals there. So you had some hardware that was able to actually deliver on multiple materials and the multi-objective direction. Now you have the opportunity to try to provide a model for delivering through software processing instructions to produce models on other hardware. What has that shift been like for you? I think we've been really lucky to have worked across the spectrum of this technology stack of additive manufacturing. We ground metal for machines. CNC's, we even additively manufactured parts of that machine, and we've done the electronics, the machine control, all of that. Now, we're 100% software company now. All of that hardware work, we've paused, and that's elsewhere. So we're 100% software, but that understanding of what it takes to actually make a machine, process materials, and the complexity that's there, and how challenging it can be to properly instrument your systems, and all of the data handling and process control gives us massive insight when we have been developing FormFlow, our software additive flow. And so on, on one side, we felt this kind of rocket ship opportunity to be 100% software, design iterations within technology, algorithm development. And we've got an amazing team, PhDs, people who've been in this space for ages. And because of that was one real benefit, kind of have massive respect for any organization that's able to take hardware to market and deliver things even within the margin of error of reliability but i think at the same time the freedom that software can enable and handling all this complexity because you mentioned in a sense the current workflows aren't really hooked up for multi-objective thinking current workflows aren't hooked up for multiple material properties i just just want to emphasize this multi-material property because single material systems 
are fantastic also at allowing functionalization, right? You know, you change the temperature by a small amount and that material property is going to change at the end of the day. You handle the material differently, it's going to be different. So we have lots of optionality within the whole spectrum of single material, emergent multi-material additive to optimize what engineers want to harness this capability to trade off against the trade-offs that emerge if you can functionalize local regions of of a part. What are the range of hardware endpoints that your system really serves? Do you serve a broad range of additive technologies? And where do you get as close to the path instructions as possible versus like being stuck delivering meshes or make-do intermediate formats? You covered two really great points there, Matt. So I'll address the machine target, material target first. So if we look at the machine and material landscape right now, we have metal-based, ceramic-based, polymer-based systems. We have laser powder bed through to extrusion, through to other forms of joining materials together. And there's three steps if we think about it, right? We've got material systems. Which material systems can we work with? And the answer to that is our technology is material system agnostic. But we have specific modules that can handle the particularities of these different material systems. So within polymers, we have uh, anisotropic capabilities. When you're layering things up, you've got different material properties depending on the direction that you're applying a particular force to. Within uh, metal structures, you have a similar kind of behavior with a number of metal systems of crystal growth, right? So you have this similar anisotropy induced. Uh, and within ceramics as well, you have 2D materials like boron nitride and others that you are able to have quite aligned properties around. So material systems, our software can handle a, a range. If we then look at technologies, we've delivered for laser powder bed fusion. We've got interfaces and done work within the FFF landscape, including Ultimaker technologies and material systems. And including DED, LMD style, so the blown powder welding kind of technologies, through into cold spray as well, which is really interesting technology for high throughput. And even beyond that, into injection molding and using the digital advancement that I think additive manufacturing has enabled to then take that transition. What do you do next? Are you looking at end parts or beyond? Selfishly, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you can continue to split out the engineering targets in the posted results. That's pretty interesting. I actually haven't seen that in in a lot of the tools that that I've been looking to in this space. Usually it's kind of all baked in at that point and you're left guessing a little bit what's contributing what. Be my pleasure to Matt. So what is an optimization? Then it's in principle, optimization is a computer program or software saying, if I change variables, what is the effect on my outcomes? And we're trying to make those outcomes as optimum as possible. And so it can always be thought of as an equation of different variables adding up to an outcome. And very often what happens when you're thinking about multi-objectives, we often also have multiple outcomes that we're trying to achieve. For example, I mentioned mechanical and thermal properties earlier that we might be trying to consider, or cost and speed, production speed. So those could be seen as different objectives. And what can happen is, and frequently happens, your variables, so multiple variables driving a single objective, 
So variables could be materials, processing parameters, lattice structures, will have an influence on also multiple objectives. So you might think, fantastic, I want to try and make something faster. You amp up your temperature to the max on, say, with your extrusion system to get the high melt flow rates, and then you find the polymer started to burn. Now that's going to affect your other objective you had was making sure your part can actually um, have the right material properties to fit its purpose, because that polymer might have been denatured somewhat. That's just an example of how you can have one variable and these competing outcomes. And so that's what our software is able to handle, which is you can put in from a first principles perspective, what are the forces? What are your limits and your targets that you're trying to achieve? And are you, what are you looking to do with your different objectives? And by putting all your variables in with a really simple user interface, our technology behind the scenes does all of these calculations. And it looks at what variables are open to you. This also relates to where one is in a design, engineering, manufacturing workflow. Where are you in your development? If you're at the beginning of your development of a product, you've got many more variables often open to you. You can change materials in and out often. You can change geometry or topology. Your manufacturing parameters are a whole of the ball game that is totally open to you. But as you progress closer and closer to manufacturing, your variables that you can change become more limited. And from a manufacturing perspective, then you can even look at these manufacturing parameters, start to optimize your functions. So that's what we mean by multi-objective. So moving into your question of how does it work, right? How do you connect to the machines or how do you, how do you translate your objectives into real parts? Within Formflow, what we've been really focusing on is how do we look at the relationships and the trade-offs based on different technology types, based on different stages organizations are on within that workflow. So for example, extremely advanced research labs are working on adding different metal alloys together, right? That's an incredibly advanced, they've got lots of variables open to them for say aerospace applications or uh, advanced automotive applications. And so there our software can come and help to say, You've got all these freedoms of material properties. Where am I putting my copper and my aluminium and my titanium or what have you? What's possible for my metallurgy? You can't mix anything with everything, right? Or at the same time, where can I put my carbon fiber filled composite? And where can I put my TPU for a polymer application or extrusion based application? Then if we though look at organizations that have already invested in equipment, because this is another major constraint, we have a legacy of powder bed, of extrusion, we have hardware already. So if we're at that stage and we have already materials we know we have to work with because of our certification requirements, we have a, a series of hardware that we've invested in already and our budget's not going to be released until next year or more. How do we utilize these trade-offs? And that's where we can look at the interior properties of particular parts, these other material properties we can handle. So if we take Ultimaker as an example, we have different infill types, right? We have different materials that we can extrude with dual or multi-extrusion. And these are quite powerful variables that we can work with. And so the allocation of different infills, for example, or different materials in different regions, is a really powerful uh, capability. And that will trade off against your physics, against your cost, against your production speed, to meet your particular purpose. So even if you are at that last stage, you have an Ultimaker, 
you've got free materials already. You've got maybe, a, I don't know, an advanced composite, right? One of the carbon-filled composites. You've got a TPU and you've got a PLA, for example. You've got your part design already fixed. That's what you've received. And you're there at the machine. You're thinking, I just have to make this part work to hold the jig in place, for example, or some such. Then you would put those material properties in that you've got, and they, they can be related to the particular parameter sets that you have on your system, right, with your material families. And then C, based on this, where can I put infill 80% to 20%, for example? What are the material property implications of those? So you're not just naively saying, based on the stress distribution, I want to have my high stress region having a high infill and my low stress region having a low infill, you're actually saying, what are the particular material properties of my 80% infill? What are the material properties of my 20% infill? And what's the implication of the overall part to meet this objective function of placing these different regions with these different uh, infills? And so that creates almost like a volumetric allocation of infill in this example within a particular topology. Say, for example, what we're seeing a lot now are these principles of modifier meshes. So the ability to export additional volumetric data together with an overall shape. And so within Formflow, we say, for example, got a number of different integrations with other slicing technology and build processes. One of them is Cura. So we're able to export these modifier meshes into Cura that are linked to the material properties that you have available within you and slicing profiles that you have allocated your particular material properties to. So you're having this nice smooth interface. You come out of Formflow with your Cura file, you upload it into Cura, the volumetric regions of your part with the different parameter sets that have been allocated with your predicted performance. And if you're working with a particularly esoteric or new part or material settings that are experimental, that prediction then can be tested and you can put that updated material property data back into the workflow. And here's where the multi-objective functions really come into their own because we've made them repeatable. So you can set up a, an objective function, visually see what's happening in it clearly with blocks and save that, apply it to a whole other topology or geometry, reconnect where you've got the boundary conditions and rerun it. So you might've spent, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or more putting together a really custom workflow, maybe a design of experiments even. You've changed your weighting of caring about mechanical more. You've changed your weighting of caring about thermal more. And you've maybe made three different options. And that will result in different infills allocated in different volumetric areas. And you have this wonderful smooth iteration loop. So you're saving potentially weeks, months, maybe more of time by showing what your trade-off is, where your different designs are, selecting what you print and printing it. Which is the point, right, Matt? So instead of, say, just kicking out a mesh at the end with the different parts, and then, then the end user, in this case, will stay with Ultimaker, because that's obviously the area that I know the best, you, you then manage each of those elements the way you might think of them. Instead, you're using the modifier meshes, which is really exciting. It gives you a much closer experience to having control over how the machine performs in the exact topology where you want to make these changes. That's a really interesting to, way to work. And, and what I am curious about, was it difficult to find the route to deliver the specific 
you know, formats for modifier meshes as needed by Mycura for that integration? Was that a really unique experience or did that match up with ways that you were able to work with a number of systems? Well, I'll start by saying that out of form flow, we have incredibly high resolution, volumetrically voxel based or whatever you want to call it, material properties, allocations that we're able to deliver. And that interface often involves some kind of downsampling, if you will, or reduction of what you've allocated through. Of course, there's still an element of that, partly also driven by what machines can deliver, but the modifier mesh capability within, say, the Curious workspace and files were relatively straightforward, right? And there's the advantage, of course, that there's open sourcing around the architecture of Cura. And in this sense, we worked with some of the development team who were helpful in answering those questions. And, you know, we worked, actually, we, we met the product managers of Ultimaker and materials people via the project we delivered together for Formnext in 2019. So that was a nice face-to-face connection that really actually laid the foundation for some of this. That project itself was really exciting. We made some great impact. I think working with you guys, we showed, in this case, multi-property with composite structures, right? So the advanced composites coming out and we allocated these different parameter sets and showed how different build orientations result in different topologies and different properties being allocated. I think the metrics coming out of that, if scaled up to that kind of civil engineering application, I think we're looking at like 15 times the scalability increases and uh, and versus other tools and methodologies that were being used and compared against us, we were 20, 30% better in performance with our algorithms back then two years ago. So just think what they are now. Oh, that's really exciting. So I I think with that, we should wrap this conversation for now. And I look forward to uh, connecting with you and your team in the future and and hearing some of the other rapid advances that you're making uh, in this space. It'd be my absolute pleasure and to all listeners as well. Very happy to have conversations. My team are highly responsive and always like a challenge. Please do send those through. Alexander, thank you so much for joining today for talking at it. I really appreciate it. Such an honor and a privilege, Matt. Happy to come on as many as you need. We hope that you have enjoyed our 27th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, new developments in functional prototyping and agile manufacturing. Featuring Chris Peters from Quadlock, Ola von Seeland from Trinkle, Alexander Pluk from Additive Flow. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. In two weeks' time, we will return with episode 28. And meanwhile, don't miss our Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus episode series with a new mini between each episode launch. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Chris, Ola, and Alexander for joining us for episode 27. Our series producer is Hanna Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.